Welcome to Healing Wisdom, a Thursday morning talk show featuring guests sharing their stories and knowledge. We discuss the healing aspects of the arts, metaphysics, social justice, and adventure through all types of terrain. So join me, Pandora Peoples, here on WOMR 92.1 FM in Provincetown and WFMR 91.3 FM in Orleans. We're streaming worldwide at WOMR.org. Hello, hello, hello out there. This is part two of my conversation with expert movement sound instructor and educator, Dr. Rebecca Burrell. She's got an upcoming retreat in Scotland at Findhorn, June 10th through the 17th. Tell us about that first language, that relationship between movement and sound in utero. Every gesture of sound evoked a movement and every gesture of movement evoked a sound. So there's this immediacy of the identity of meaning. What's the quality of this experience I'm having? So this is the first, first languaging. And so then I came to understand that this was really the language of art. So art is our first language. It's an aesthetically organized language. Our, our perceptions are aesthetically organized. So, and I took that further to recognize that, well, that's how we, that's how indigenous people were in nature. That's how plant spirit medicine, that tradition in plant spirit medicine came into being for indigenous peoples being present with the qualities of, of the creatures and intelligence of plants. It's not like, you know, the Europeans came, came around and started, you know, interviewing, well, how did you know this plant had these properties? And, and, and you know, they couldn't, they couldn't take in that they that they were being communicated with by plants. This was an reciprocal relational communication. And so they would come up with things like, well, it was trial and error. You know, <laughs> you just pick up a plant and decide, well, this plant must be good for knitting bones if you make a compress with it. And so, <laughs> so you know, you tried it on, did it work, didn't work, you know, which is, you know, ridiculous. We'd all still be sitting around wondering what all these plants are doing when this Plant spirit medicine is a hugely vast science, uh, an intuitive and art science that's been around, you know, since indigenous times. And it's been a threat to certain very patriarchal ideas about what, what we want reality to be. And so in the 16th and 17th centuries, we, we started killing off all the plant spirit medicine people in Europe and the, the midwives, these are all herbalists and midwives. So. This whole capacity to know the world through this aesthetic languaging has been bad-mouthed and, and very much injured as a, as a valid way of knowing and being in the world. And so that's what the work I'm doing is it brings it all back as not just valid, but it brings it back as absolutely essential. And it's, and it's absolutely the primary language. And it's, and it's really, you know, in our modern art, we have a lot of conceptual art which has its place. I'm working with per pure perception and aesthetic communication in art making. So you get down to the real nitty gritty, the really foundation, the primary experience of human art making, which is an immediate language. It's, it's a way of organizing mean, meaning and communicating meaning for us. So it goes beyond just the, you know, quote unquote, what is art? It goes into this far deeper realm of what is human relationship with nature. I went to Fintorn in the fall. You do teach at Fintorn, you have to do what's called an experience week where you experience and immerse yourself in the culture, history, um, present and future uh, ideas about what 
then Torn has to continue to offer the world and how it's changed over time because once they were a very small community and now they're a vast community and they've had hundreds of thousands of people over the years come and, and learn there and take take courses with them and participate so and then in the end they all contribute something back so that everything keeps changing and transforming so i'm thinking nonverbal language really begets nonverbal understanding that there's this link between you know being in a, a non mentally articulated place or however you want to describe <laughs> nonverbal like being more in the realm of abstract thinking which is more in a meditative state where you're thinking more conceptually or experientially instead of like, gee, did I get that done today? Oh, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the more, linear, the linear, yeah. And it changes our brain waves to be in that present state of experiencing sensorily. And so it also opens us up to understanding nonverbal wisdom or knowledge. You could say an embodied knowledge. That our body participates in informing us and our heart participates in informing us. And the mind steps back because the mental processes that we've become so in, inundated with in modern life, we're, hyper, we're a hyper-literate society, so it's all about reading, which is not a, an embodied practice. If you read you know, literature, and poetry, then it gets more embodied because it's evoking, it's the art of that. If it's really good literature and poetry, it evokes the embodied, the somatic intelligence to participate in the meaning making that you're coming into. And But the heart, your heart, I mean, your heart is considered a brain unto itself. Um, and it's electromagnetic, it's um, hormonal, it's biochemical which is, you know, it's, it's a whole bunch of different things which it communicates to our, our whole body-mind sense. And in this understanding, and because I'm, I'm a movement-based child developmentalist, and there's an understanding in other people, other studies, other fields that have come to understand the vital foundation of movement to our thinking processes, our intelligences, our emotional organization, Whereas before, you know, it's just, okay, kids, sit still and raise your hand, don't say anything, you know, so that we, we, we so confine the child's natural intelligence, I mean, the intelligence has been evolving for hundreds of thousands of years, um, we confine it, we reduce it, we truncate it, so that we're left with a much smaller intelligence that gets very mental. And that's, and, and, and so much reading, 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 makes that because that I mean reading is a not a natural process it's a cultural one and um and it's a clever very clever one and i mean the original alphabets were somatically based like the original hebrew alphabet was somatically based so it was still a story every letter had a story to it you know, so, so you're still in the oral tradition of things and then when the greeks took the hebrew alphabet they totally abstracted everything became an abstraction. There was no more any story related to the, the, the picture of the letter. They changed the letters all around. So they, like the A was originally upside down and was the, was the first sound of a Hebrew word for uh, ox, for ox. So it tells a story. 
But the, you know, they, they turned the A upside down and they, you know, all it had was a phoneme that went with it with no story left behind. You know, the stories were left behind. And that's where the somatic and the, you know, the perceptual, the artistic, the, the aesthetic perception comes in. So, so original recording of our oral tradition through an alphabet was originally very aesthetic. Can you talk about primal kinship and what you call a bond with the natural world? This is what this language is, and it's such an embodied language, and it's and it reflects our embeddedness. So embodiedness, embeddedness, which are two things that are, you know, we're very disembedded. You know, these super rich people making rockets and things, and you know, <laughs> practicing maybe leaping off to Mars and live in artificial, construct artificial environments there, that's incredibly disembedded. We're out of our rhythms and um, deep associations with the natural world and the perceptual processes of the natural world. It's like, you know, science come along and says, well, what's moving? You know, the, the, the stories tell us the sun moves across the sky, but science tells us, oh no, it's the earth that's moving around the sun. That's just an illusion. You know? And it's a very primitive idea. But the fact of the matter is every single plant life, every single, every single living thing is, is geared and patterned after the sun moving across the sky. You know, we go through, we're, we're in a stable place and we go through the experience of that daily and we go through the experience, you know, going down to the Tropic of Capricorn, coming into the equinoxes and going to the Tropic of Cancer with the two solstices in winter and summer solstices, you know, those are perceptual patterns and rhythms, um, you know, biological rhythms um, that, you know, inform us of where we are in the world and what where, what season it is and what rhythm it is and what what time of day it is and, you know, how long it takes to do things and when is the, you know, the right moment to practice something or bring something back in, you know, that you've left behind six months ago. These are all realities that if we don't, we didn't function by them, we would not, we would not survive. So to say that living under those things is somehow, you know, an illusion. um, And this is, you know, just one example, um, a very simplified example, but science has done that. Science has told us, you know, what's really real is these things, you know, that we make tools to look at at the microscopic and you know, highly magnified telescopic levels. So these are the real things. But you know what we see in the in, in the in deep space, we're not there. Now what we see on the TV set, we're not there. You know, what we see in the magnifying glass. Well, there was someone who was there. I can't think of her name right now, but she wrote the book called an e- "A Feeling for the Organism," or else another. I'm just not thinking of her name, but she's quite famous, and she was a a genetic biologist with plants and she actually she was so deeply immersed in this microscope she got connected and associated with these qualities that communicate okay and so she and that was her phrase a feeling for the organism in other words this is a companion in there they know you're present and you know that you're present with them Okay, this is a whole nother way to be in the world instead of thinking the world is ignorant and inert and just there for us, our human exploitation. Well, we can't have intelligence unless we know where we are in the world, unless we're in relationship to our embeddedness. We need to be embodied in our embeddedness 
And that's what we're, that was by, what was I was talking about. This language is about being embodied. So there are all of our body, heart, and mind inform us and that, that we can't have an embodiment without an embeddedness in the place where we are. But in modern world, we're both disembodied and disembedded. And the name of the scientist was Barbara McClintock, and she, she won a Nobel Prize. She really did bring Usher back into the scientific world that, well, we're in a, a very intelligent creation. It's not a dead thing for us to exploit and to tease the secrets out of it so we can use them for our own final design. But there's not other than a hugely enchanting and one and wonderful, wondrous world that we're in that we'll never fathom. And that's mostly part of its wonder. If what we're observing is always changing based on who's observing and yeah, it means that n- none of the ways that we try to objectively analyze, like say animal behavior mm-hmm. or, yeah. <laughs> or observe human behavior to understand right, right, yeah. none of yeah. it takes into account that there is a sense of being observed or just this more basic relational consciousness. So can you talk a little bit about improvised ceremonial movement in connection with natural environments? So what I do is I take us, I do guided meditation, go back into utero. So we try to experience this, just the, just the sense of sound and how that resonates in you and what kind of quality and gesture arises from that so that we get that immediate reciprocal. Reciprocity? Of of quality which immediately communicates something to us is it a harsh quality is it a soft quality is it a light quality is it a heavy quality is it fast quality is it slow quality it's all these qualities that give us meaning so i take us back into that utero we try to get to that pure experience and then we come out of utero and we actually emulate the mother infant dialogue because it's all this perceptual metaphor what i'm calling this movement sound Original language is perceptual metaphor. It's a metaphor. And so, and Gregory Bateson, who was married to Margaret Mead at one point, was also a ecologist and philosopher, tells us that metaphor is not just pretty poetry. It's, it's the pattern in which all of life communicates with one another. And so, you know, I'm bringing us into that. I'm trying to allow my participants to experience that for themselves. And then after we do the mother-infant dialogue, which is all gestural and sound, and it's no words, but there's a communication and there's a bonding and there's a you know camaraderie that comes out of that and, and meaning, deep meaning. Then we go into what I call movement games and movement sound games. So we start playing with these perceptual metaphors and tossing them back and forth across different sensory modes, which is what's going on. With mother-infant dialogue in utero, it's mostly the movement sound. The movement has all these different qualities and the sound is all, all these different qualities. But when, you know, we develop in utero, all of the different senses start coming to sort of differentiate out of that fundamental. And, and when we're born, we start to exercise the learning and practice of knowing the world through all those different sensory modalities. And so we, we throw things back and forth from modality to modality, and that's what perceptual metaphor, that's how it operates. It's, and it's, you've got to be embodied and embedded to, to learn it to begin with. And so, you know, we'll like move a sound or we'll move a color. We'll, someone will move and someone will give it a color. 
So there's a visual movement, sound, transforming back and forth, flowing across the sensory modes of, you know, you, you, you can see the lay of the land of a hill going into a valley and you can move that yourself with your own body. So you can give it a musical phrase. That's what art is. You see artists coming right out of all. And so we, we practice all that and we become very consciously aware of it, you know, because it gets so sublimated in, you know, art and music, you know, we have it once a week in elementary school, you know, these ways of making meaning and communicating have been very marginalized. They're not central. We have this thing called STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And then they say, well, we better add some art to that because that's in vogue and that's part of our research. We do research on on the importance of art. And then we put A in there and call it STEAM. Well, my equation is A, parentheses, STEM. In other words, all of the STEM stuff is actually contained within the art, the arts. That languaging is fundamental. We couldn't have STEM if we didn't have A, we didn't have art, it was aesthetic intelligence. We bring that into consciousness, which is very contrary to our culture. I evoke the very essence of art making beyond the the modern notion, oh wait, let's have an art class. And so we start with art as a concept and we we make it through a concept, but here it's pre-conceptual. It's back into the pure perception of things. We start with movement, just pure sensing movement. Then we, then we have a gestural movement that we keep. And then, then we add, we allow the feeling quality of that to come into it. And then we allow an image to arise from that feeling quality. And then we make the image on paper. And then we give the image a poem. We give it words. And then we put the poem to movement. So we go full circle. And that's an exercise, and everyone takes their little scenario like that, and we, um, we make mini dances. Okay, so each person becomes an artistic director of their own dance as well as participates in it. And, you know, we're lose, using these conceptually, we make scores about what our poetry and our final piece of movement was all about. And then we come up with these little mini dances. And so that's in preparation for the next step, which is, to go into nature and immerse ourselves in a meditative state in nature and immerse in all of the different sensory qualities that nature is offering us in any one given moment and become immersed in that languaging, those qualities of meaning. And we respond in whatever ways that we do because everyone is going off by themselves to do that. And then we come back together and everyone makes a very simple poem like we did for that other exercise that we did a very simple poem that it becomes the score for their little piece. And it, and so we we put together a movement ceremonial piece that comes straight out of our immersed experiences and into the art, express arts. We all really know that ceremony, indigenous ceremony was just, was all about arts, the arts and fundamentally movement and sound, but all, all arts. So here's this language of language of qualities conveying huge information. So I really, the respect and honoring and reminder of our reciprocal relationship with nature as because we are kin. It's we, we speak the same language. It goes, we've probably heard the notion that once when animals and humans could speak the same language in mythologies all over the world, this idea that 
animals and us used to talk the same language. Animals and plants used to talk the same. And that's a real thing. You know, that's not just, a, a, you know, a pretty idea, you know. So... I don't know if we would have even survived evolution-wise if we hadn't yeah. been really in tune with understanding. That's and right. Understanding. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and if there's so many anecdotal stories of people communicating with wolves and bears. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, that would yeah. be a skill we all had, you know. Yeah, yes. That's right. And to have, you know, these distinctions between us all, but to know that we are have the capacity to communicate with one another. And that that's where the kinship lies. I have a friend who wrote a book called Homo Aestheticus, meaning humans as art makers. And, 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 we, and, and that's related to the notion of selection. We select, we evolve certain selected traits for survival. And art's been there, you know, right from the get-go. We're speaking with Dr. Rebecca Burrow, movement sound instructor. She's got an upcoming retreat at Fentorn in Scotland, June 10th through the 17th. A lot of understanding, a lot of interpretation of meaning comes to us through metaphor or symbolism. In other words, we derive meaning from the insights we get through metaphors in myth, in stories, in art, through dreams, and through meditative states. We have these aha moments in those places of ceremony and ritual and dream time and, yeah. and art making. Yeah. And there's a relief that comes when there is an understanding that we might not even be able to and often don't perfectly articulate. It's yeah. Understanding that is hard to put into words or that we're not completely able to even understand on like an intellectual level. Like there may be a consciousness but not an intellectual process that can analyze a, a clarity or an insight that we get through a metaphor. That's right. Yeah. Yes. And then, yeah, because it is outside the, the verbal realm and it is in the embodied whole intelligence, body, mind, heart intelligence. That we're being, we are communicating with and talking that language. It's really um, one in full of wonder, wonderment. Thank you so much, Rebecca Burrow, for joining us today. I really enjoyed a similar workshop you taught and this forthcoming retreat slash workshop at Fintorn in Scotland, June 10th through 17th sounds amazing. And folks can contact you through your website at horsechestnutwinds.com. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Healing Wisdom on WOMR 92.1 FM in Provincetown and WFMR 91.3 FM in Orleans. I'm your host, Pandora Peoples. My next guest is a sommelier and expert wine guide, Mel Itel. Tell us a little bit about the history of wine. So wine goes back... Um, I mean, it, it's, it's back in Noah days of the Bible. Like he, he comes off the ark and one of the first things he does is he plants a vineyard. Um, timing wise, uh, by the time he gets the grapes growing and things like that, it's probably like two to three years. So, so that, that part is uh, kind of left out of it, but um, again, it goes back historically really, really far. Wine has been a part of history um, since almost the beginning of time, uh, or the beginning of recorded time at least. And there's so much history that goes along with it that um, 
some of my favorite books to read are uh, based on the wine revolution throughout the years. Uh, not necessarily like prohibition and people coming out of that, although that's interesting. Um, I really love reading about how uh, in World War One and World War Two, France was basically decimated and uh, the, the vineyards and the winemakers and all of the cellars that they had for all of their wine um, was, was utilized uh, for not great purposes. Uh, but to see how they fought back um, was really, really interesting uh, because they, uh, they, they would do things like taint it uh, with just a little bit of kerosene. Uh, so, for instance, Riesling. Uh, which is very much a, a known grape from Germany, is planted all over the world. And one of its attributes is it can smell like petrol. It can smell like gasoline. And that actually comes from the skin of the grape. It only comes in the skin of the grape when it's a Riesling. None of the other grape varieties have that. So they tainted the wine with just a hint of kerosene or petrol and poisoned people. So, so like that was kind of how they fought back. Like they, they didn't have weapons, but they utilized what they could to create this ruckus uh, amongst like the great leaders because they were drinking all of the best wines. So they did something that, that would make them not feel so great and possibly like cause them great harm uh, because they were still fighting for their country and they were still fighting for their land. Uh, so it was very interesting to see how people utilize what they have in order to, to, to make it, so to speak. So what's your favorite wine? Riesling is, so Riesling is my favorite white grape. Um, it's very misunderstood. Um, it's one of those grapes that, or at least one of those wines that most Americans, when I say I love Riesling, they go, oh, you like sweet wines. But Riesling outside of the United States is usually very dry and crisp. Um, and doesn't have a lot of sweetness to it. Um, and that's because the American palate is geared more towards a sweeter um, confection, a, a, a sweeter wine, a sweeter, uh, they, they add sugar to everything, it seems like. If you look on the packages of, of most of the products that we consume, somewhere there's sugar or corn syrup or um, agave or some sort of sweetener because that's how the American palate is. But with Riesling, Riesling grapes can be made into a very, very, very dry, meaning no sweetness whatsoever, all the way up to what's called a Trockenbierenauschlese, which is berries that are so sweet, they dried on the vine, and they have to go out and pick the berries individually, and then they try and make a wine out of whatever is left of that juice, which is very, very concentrated. So it can go from one, one spectrum all the way to the other. They make bubbly with it. Um, it's called Sect and it's gorgeous. I absolutely love it. So as far as white wine goes, you can have a Riesling and it can be anything on the white wine spectrum, which is, is why I absolutely love it. Thank you, wine guide and expert Mel Itell for joining us. I'm sure we'll have you back soon for more of your wine wisdom. You've been listening to Healing Wisdom at Outermost Radio. All of our shows are podcast at WOMR.org. Also check out HealingWisdomRadioShow.com and contact me at Pandora at WOMR.org.
Our theme music is provided by Mazin. You can find her website at mazinmusic.com. That's M A E S Y N 